0: You're hopefully ready for a great treat the Lord's about to bring us in the Word of the Lord. Nancy Ortberg is a leader of leaders. She's not only been a leader in healthcare and in nonprofits and in sales and in just about every possible area, including ministry in the church, but she's presently serving as the CEO of Transform the Bay for Christ. This is a powerful organization God's raised up, trying to bring unity to our 11 counties, our 256 cities that will stand together. You see, in the end, there's only one church in all of this region. There's a lot of different congregations, a lot of different tribes, but there's only one church. And Nancy's committed herself to seeing this area transformed. Even though some people look and say, yeah, less than 3% of people here go to church. We are ripe for a great work, and we're grateful for people like Nancy who are leading the way to make that happen. She's not only a great author and a great speaker, she's not only a great leader and a great person, she's a great friend who's genuine, she's real, she's authentic, and you're gonna be blessed today as she comes. Let's welcome Nancy Ortberg as she comes to (laughs) minister.
1: Thank you, have a seat, get comfortable. Well, here's where I would love to start. In the work that I do that Dr. Wayne mentioned, I find myself working with churches all around the Bay Area and here's just simply what's true. Your reputation as a hallmark church in the Bay Area has not gone unnoticed. I have churches often ask me about this place and all the extraordinary things that they see coming out of it that are really unique, and I just want to say thank you for being that kind of community here in the Bay Area. I've gotten to know Ken and Wayne over the last few years, and I've also had a chance to sit with Jim Gallagher and watch during the midweek when you do your reaching out feeding service. I don't know that I've seen anything like it in the Bay Area. And looking at the amount of volunteers you have, the amount of people and schools that you help, One of the reminders is that in the Gospels, Jesus talks more about serving the poor than prayer and what it means to be born again put together. And this church is a light in the Bay Area for that. So please don't stop. Thank you. So this morning, I want to talk about what God had in mind when he got the vision for the church. Because I don't think God's imagination was so small that he simply wanted churches to be soft, little sweet presences on the corners of cities. I think he imagined that churches would be an unstoppable force. And there are many things in the gospel that Jesus teaches about to help us remember how do we unleash the power of the gospel in our own hearts, in our own workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our churches so that the world gets to see the kind of love that only God can allow in a human heart, so that our churches become a magnet force for people to consider God. And don't we know in the Bay Area, we have a lot of people that need to consider God. So I'm going to talk this morning just about two things, two of the many things that Jesus said would be helpful in unleashing the power of the church. And the first one is this. Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry, began to preach something so different that right out of the gate, it annoyed the religious leaders. One of the phrases that Jesus repeats over and over again in his ministry is You have heard it said this, but I tell you it's this way. He was radically reorienting our understanding of what the gospel is. And the first thing he did was to remind us that it is by being radically inclusive that we begin to show the world what the love of God is all about. Radically inclusive. When Jesus gave his very first sermon, when he was about 30 years old, rather than going to the center of the religious world where the leaders hung out together, he on purpose started at the outer edges of society. The first sermon that he gave is recorded in Matthew chapter five and beyond. And in this sermon, With hills full of hundreds if not thousands of farmers and carpenters and bricklayers and fishermen, all the kinds of people that the religious leaders of the day ignored, Jesus said to them, you are blessed in the kingdom of God. Here are the people that Jesus said were blessed in God's sight, those who are poor in spirit, those who are sad which Vaughn just reminded us of in that beautiful song he sang. Blessed are the meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart, the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. None of these people would have set the center for the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus began his earthly ministry by saying, let me reorient you to the kingdom of God. That these people who you think are on the fringes on, and are on the outside are actually at the very center of God's heart. Jesus didn't stop there. He kept that message going. Even with his disciples, if you remember a few times, the disciples with great annoyance tried to keep children away from Jesus. Because back in Jesus' day, children weren't even considered actual people. There's a fabulous book by an author named Baki, and the title is When Children Became People the birth of childhood in early Christianity. It was the followers of Jesus in the history of our world who introduced this idea that children are important. And not only important, but when Jesus annoyingly said back to his disciples, don't keep the children from coming to me. When the children came, he reminded his disciples, take a look at their faith and you will begin to understand the kind of faith that is necessary for you to understand the kingdom of God. The religious leaders didn't understand that, nor did they like that, but Jesus didn't quit. He kept going. He kept pointing to fishermen and to people who were sick, people who were disabled, women, all the people that the religious leaders would push to the outside. Jesus said, no, they are on the inside. And then about halfway through his ministry, he told a story that began to get the religious leaders so mad at this message of radical inclusion that they began to plot his death on a cross. It's in Luke chapter 10, and it starts off by saying, a lawyer stood up among the crowd to put Jesus to the test and asked him a question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing that it was a test, rather than give him a direct answer responded with a question of his own to this lawyer. Jesus said this, You study the law. What is written in it? How do you read it? And so the lawyer, being put on the spot to answer his own question about how you inherit eternal life, said back to Jesus, Well, I read the law by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength in your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. The passage should end right there. Question asked, answered, and done. But something else was going on here. And because the lawyer was asking the question to test Jesus, he felt uncomfortable when Jesus affirmed his answer. And so he had one more little point of clarification that he had for Jesus. And it says, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? This neighbor you speak about that I should include, could you define that person for me? Because what I'm hoping you're going to tell me is it's all those people that I pull closest to myself who are actually quite like me. This little echo chamber that I've created where everybody looks alike and walks alike and talks alike. And then Jesus in order to help him understand what God meant by loving your neighbor as yourself, told a story. And this story is so beautifully put together. It's easy to just remember the flannel graph story you heard in Sunday school, but there is something really deep and important going on in this story. Jesus says, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves and was wounded and robbed and left on the side of the road. So now everybody that's listening to Jesus knows he's going to tell a story and that's how the rabbis of those days taught theology by telling stories and often by making a hero out of somebody so the people would understand. So the people are leaning forward and they're understanding that this person on the side of the road is the one who needs help and then Jesus understandably in the next part of his story says this, now by chance a priest was walking by on this road and the people listening to the story knew it they're like yeah of course it's the priest who's going to be the hero of the story he's our religious leader he's doing the right thing but Jesus says that the priest walked by now you've got to know that the people that were listening to the story were really really surprised by that turn of events in this story. They were not expecting that the religious leader now was no longer the hero of the story and they had no idea where Jesus was going with this story. In fact, at one point it says that he passed him by and actually went on the other side of the road to pass this poor man by. You need to understand that this actually wasn't a road, it was a footpath. And to walk on the other side of the road almost meant that you would have to step over the wounded man to get away from him. Jesus is using his spiritual gift of sarcasm here to drill home a point. So now that the audience listening knows that the priest is not gonna be the hero, they're wondering what's gonna come next in the story because Jesus is answering the question of who is my neighbor? And then Jesus says, so just like that priest, a Levite now walks by and the crowd is relieved. Okay, a Levite. They're sort of under the priests in the pecking order in the temple, but they're still the religious leader. The religious leader is going to be the hero of this story. And then the Levite does the same thing that the priest did. You gotta know by now, people are on the edge of their seat. They have absolutely no idea where Jesus is going. And then Jesus says, the only time the word but is used In this passage, but a Samaritan walked by. Now, Jesus probably kept talking to tell the rest of the story, but I'm here to tell you that there would have been an audible gasp and hands thrown over open mouths and people looking at each other with shock and anger that Jesus would make the hero of the story in answer to the question, who is my neighbor that I have to radically include? A Samaritan a samaritan who was not even on the outskirts of all these other people that jesus had been talking about but was on the other side of the boundary a people so despised by the jewish people they didn't even consider them human and jesus makes him the hero of the story and then jesus puts the knife in and twists it about six or seven times because he says the samaritan stopped And he went over and he bandaged the man's wounds. He put oil on them and wrapped them with cloth. He put the man on his own donkey and walked. He took the man to the nearest inn. He gave the innkeeper money. He said, I'll be back in a few days and I'll give you more money and I'll take care of this man. He took care of him over and over and over again. And then at the end of the story, Jesus simply puts the question back to the lawyer. Who in this story do you think showed mercy? Who was the neighbor? And the lawyer had to admit it was the Samaritan, to which Jesus says, go and do likewise. Jesus is pulling and stretching our understanding of who the outsider is and says, the only way you will understand who is in the kingdom of God is if you understand that there's not a person that you've met that God isn't madly in love with. We're to be radically inclusive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book Life in Community during World War II two amazing things about Christian community. The first is that the beginning of Christian community starts when your dream of Christian community dies. When your idea of this perfection gives way to the realities of the difficulty of Christian community. That's when the seeds of Christian community can be real and actually be radically inclusive. And then the second thing he said that is so counterintuitive is that in Christian community, always sitting right next to you will be the person you least like and it is good for you that they are there. Every one of us in this room has a kind of person that gets under our skin that we just don't much like. Now, we've been Christians long enough not to tell anybody that, and we just say, oh, I love his little heart to death, but inside you're thinking, I don't like him at all. The humbling thing is to realize that right now somebody is thinking of you when I'm saying this. (laughs) The truth is that it is a lifelong journey with God, a lifelong path to being spiritually formed in the mind of Jesus to continue to open ourselves up to be radically inclusive. A number of years ago, I was working with about 10 people that I graduated from high school with. We were working on our class reunion. I won't tell you how many years ago that was, and I won't tell you what year the reunion was. You don't need to know that. But we were all so excited. We had gone to a Christian school together, and we were looking forward to getting all of us back together to reimagine the memories and talk about the great time that we had together. We sent emails out inviting people. We rented a room. We set up a dinner. And we started getting emails emails back from people that were really excited to be a part of that evening. One night when we were planning it, we were checking through the emails and filling out the list. And we got an email from a guy named Stan that was in our graduating class. We were really surprised and excited to hear from Stan because Stan was always one of those guys that kind of was on the edges. Stan was just weird. He was. And we were so excited that Stan wanted to be with us until we read the rest of the email. And basically Stan said that on that night, the last place on earth he wanted to be was with any of us. And he began to explain what it felt like inside of his soul to come to school every day, every single day for four years, and feel like I had to bounce around the outsides of every single group. I was never a part of anybody. And then at the end of the email, he listed two of us, myself and another young man named Barry Underwood. He said, except for you two, you guys were always so nice to me. Let me let you in on a little secret. I was never nice to Stan. I just wasn't mean to him. And it made me wonder with tears in my eyes that night, what must it be like to be on the outside and so lonely for so long that you mistake kindness? for somebody simply not being mean to you. I could hardly speak when I drove home that night trying to process this with God. I was so ashamed and embarrassed and sad that without even thinking about it I had been part of a group of people that just didn't let somebody in that needed to be let in. This radical inclusion that I know this church is already practicing that couldn't get even more deep, will be a shining light in the Bay Area for people to understand that what the gospel says is there are no people that are more important, smarter, or better than anybody else, and that we are all brothers and sisters. The second thing that I want to talk about this morning, that if you add it to this radical inclusion, will just make your church an unstoppable force because it will reflect the nature of God's love for us is that we have been given gifts in order to serve other people. Most of the time when you get a gift at Christmas or on your birthday, it is for you and you get to keep it and you get to use it and wear it or whatever it is. But the gifts of God are different. These gifts that God gives His church, all of us in this church, teaching and prayer and faith and wisdom and intercession and discernment, All of those gifts are not to be consumed for ourselves, but they're for the purpose of coming alongside of other people who need help, to help them to begin to understand how much God loves them and how good it is to live in His kingdom. A number of years ago, before John and I came back to California, we were on staff at a church much like this one in Chicago. I don't recommend Chicago as a place to live, being a native Californian we lived there for nine winters every one of them was seven months long and we lived in a little cul-de-sac and there was one set of neighbors to our right that did not go to church didn't know about god and so because my husband and i were pastors on staff at a church we just made it our mission to get them to come to church they were great people they were about 10 years older than us school teachers childless by choice they were just so dedicated to their profession and i remember a few months after we moved into the house i was speaking to them in the front yard, and I said, hey, my husband is preaching at our church this weekend. We'd love to have you join us. And they smiled very politely and said, oh, we'd love to, but that weekend in particular, we're going to be up to our ears grading papers. We're not able to come. No problem. I'm undeterred. A couple of months later, I went over to their house and knocked on the door and I said, hey, this weekend I'm preaching, and we'd love to have you come, and we'll take you out to lunch afterwards. No kidding smile on their face, frozen, silent for about three seconds, and then they said something like this, I, I think that's the weekend we clip our nails. Yes, that's the weekend we, we can't make it. We're so sorry. Look at these nails. <laughs> what can we say? I went home kind of embarrassed and told my husband, I think we need to stop inviting them to church. So we just decided to be good neighbors. When the husband had a heart attack, my husband visited them in the hospital until he got better. When the wife had cancer, I took meals over. We gardened together. We had pleasant neighborhood conversation, but it never went beyond that. About the seventh year we lived there, out of nine years, one spring day, Neil, the husband, came running over to me and said, Nancy, Nancy, when are your church services this weekend? I remember thinking, what? But I acted very cool and just told him. You want to know why he asked me? He and his wife had gone to work a couple of days previous, and they shared a little office in the school that they worked in, and they worked both of them with the same teacher's aide who they just loved. You know what teacher's aide salaries are? Pretty low. She was a single mom whose husband left her after the third child was born. She didn't have a car. She'd have to get her kids up about an hour earlier than the other kids to get them ready to drop them off at a neighbor's so that she could go catch two buses to get to work at the school my neighbors worked at. And a couple of days previously, she came running into their office so excited, and she said, you're never going to guess what happened. A church I don't even go to gave me a free car. My neighbors were so excited, they asked her a bunch of questions, and after a few minutes, they said, I think that's the church our neighbors keep inviting us to. Do you want to know how our church became the kind of place they gave single moms free cars. Fifteen years before John and I ever got to that church, one Sunday after a sermon, a young man came forward to meet the senior pastor and thank him for his sermon that morning. This guy was tall, rough around the edges, did not have all of his teeth, had a lot of tattoos, tobacco stains around his finger, and he shook our senior pastor's hand strongly, and he said, you need to know that this church has changed my life. I started coming here 18 months ago when my life had fallen apart and I had nowhere else to turn. My wife had left me and taken the kids. I was addicted to drugs and alcohol. I had lost my job. I was so desperate that I came to this church the first Sunday with a gun. You know, the pastor's thinking, gun, ushers, somebody come help me, security. And he said, you know, I was in such a crisis that I let what you said seep in just a little bit, and over the course of almost a year and a half, listening to the music and hearing the sermons, going to small groups and recovery groups and having people come alongside me and help me get jobs. My wife is moving back in with me. I've got two job interviews next week. I'm not addicted anymore. My life has just turned around and it's mostly because of this church and I need to give back, but I'm not a preacher and I don't sing. Here's what I do. I'm a mechanic. I have a little business. And here's what I know about your church, Pastor. You have a lot of rich people that go to your church. I can tell by the cars they drive. (laughs) You have a lot of poor people that go to your church. I can tell by the cars they drive. And, Pastor, I'm here to tell you today that eight out of the 10 people that get out of those bad cars are single moms. And, Pastor, when they go into the church, some of those cars are so bad. I get on my back and get underneath and look at the engine, and the pastor's thinking, You're under the cars. You brought a gun. I don't think this is going to end well. So then he just simply said, because his life had been so changed by Jesus, here's what I'd like you to do, Pastor. Next weekend, would you get up and tell the rich people that when they buy a new car, they don't need the resale value of their old car. Have them donate it to the church. I'll get some other people like me who are good mechanics, and we'll take it to the car auction, and we'll buy four or five cars for the price of that one car, and then we'll fix those cars up, and we'll give them away to single moms. A bunch of the small groups in our church got so excited, they got gas cards, yeah? They got gasoline credit uh, gift cards and car wash cards and put them in the car so that when the single moms got the cars, it had everything they needed. And the last year that John and I were on staff at that church, that church gave away 200 cars to single moms. Yeah. But here's the amazing thing, for seven years trying to get our neighbors to listen to a sermon or the music is not what introduced them to the life of God. They came to me to find out when our churches started because they could not believe there was a place that loved so deeply and gave so freely that it had a ministry like that and it was because a pastor took seriously somebody's gift as a mechanic to say that's as important as preaching and singing in helping people understand who God is and who the church is and helping the church be an unstoppable force. So here's the last thing I wanna say. God has taken every single one of us, every one of us who is broken and wounded and fills us up with a love of God so that our cracks are still scars, but they're healing. And then he's invited us to be in a community that's radically inclusive. And that pulls our giftedness back enough to encourage somebody else so they can go forward in their journey. I'm going to show you in our last few minutes together a video clip that I think shows this picture of what God imagined the church to be like in really remarkable ways. It's from the movie Biscuit. Some of you have probably seen it. In the movie, Jeff Bridges is a rich tycoon who dabbles in thoroughbred horse racing, and he has a stock of beautiful horses. But his horse trainer, Chris Cooper, encourages him one day to buy a beaten-down nag of a horse named Seabiscuit because he has a feeling that there is something special in this horse that is not obvious to the naked eye. So Jeff Bridges buys the horse, and then they hire Toby Maguire as the character Red Pollard to be the jockey to ride Seabiscuit. And every good jockey knows that if you're gonna ride a horse you have to get to know the horse and Red Pollard realized That what got the spirit in Seabiscuit to run like a thoroughbred Was when you held him back in the race just long enough so that he could get eye-to-eye with another horse and see the fire in that other horse's eye and then he would take off like a thoroughbred in the body of a nag of a horse and in this video clip It's right after Red Pollard has spent a year in the hospital recovering from a horrible accident that broke many of his bones. And so for a year, he couldn't ride Seabiscuit. They brought another jockey named George in to ride him. And Red Pollard said to George, you need to come to the hospital and listen to me so I can tell you what to do with Seabiscuit to make him win. This video clip in particular is when Red Pollard has regained enough health to be riding Seabiscuit for the first time after the accident at Santa Anita racetrack in Los Angeles. Watch what happens when George, the other jockey who rode Seabiscuit for that year, enters the race alongside of Red Pollard.
0: You know, everybody thinks we found this broken down horse and fixed him, but we didn't. He fixed us. Every one of us, and I guess in a way, we kind of fixed each other too.
1: There is a sea biscuit in every person that you meet. And when we become radically inclusive, and when we pull ourselves back to encourage that person, they move forward and the church becomes unstoppable because God is unstoppable. Let's pray. Good Father, we are so awed by and grateful for a kind of love you have for us that we don't fully understand, that is so inclusive it leaves nobody out, and that has bestowed upon us gifts so that we get to partner with you in the restoration of this broken and beautiful world. I pray for Cathedral of Faith that it would continue and deepen its roots to shine even brighter in this dark bay area and to be a kind of church where people look and see inclusion and serving that takes their breath away and makes them scratch their heads and wonder if it might be true that there is a good God. We thank you most of all this morning for your son Jesus and it is in his name that we pray, amen.
0: I want to invite you to stand with me. What a powerful word about this unstoppable force, that God from the beginning has always had this dream that there'd be people here on earth that reflect like what it's like in heaven, amen? So grateful for Nancy and her leadership, her word to us. We have a responsibility, I think, to stand with her in prayer as well as she leads our communion transformation. I'm gonna invite you to reach your hands toward her as we pray for God's blessing in Nancy and John's life. Lord, thank you that you brought this family, and particularly this leader in Nancy, to this community for such a time as this. Thank you, Lord, for the way she commits herself to serving you, to serving your people, and to serving the Bay Area. And We just pray blessing upon her, strength in her body, mind, and spirit, encouragement to her, Lord, as she continues to serve as a leader, not only in this community, but in her family, in her household, with her children and grandchildren. Lord, just make her a target of your blessing. Strengthen her. You know exactly what her needs are. You know exactly the encouragement that she needs in this moment. Come and surround her. And may the best days be yet to come as she serves you and your purposes in this kingdom. We thank you for the word she's spoken to it. May it be true of us that we would be that people. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Again, let's say thanks to Nancy for her leadership to us. Blessings
1: on you.